one of our specials from the 2023 Pediatric Critical Care Society conference in Edinburgh um, at the beginning of October. Harish, unfortunately, you couldn't come to this talk, but this was the day after you were there. And I went to a talk by Marie Spears on um, traumatic cardiac arrest and outcomes and resuscitation from that. And afterwards, we had a chat. It was really interesting to talk to her. I, I thought the, uh, your recorded conversation with her was absolutely fantastic. And there are a few things that I learned, especially the Paul Science study was really fascinating regarding the harmfulness of transfusion in trauma. Um, her message was um, was pretty clear. Um, we talked about a few things. We, we, we talked about priorities in uh, in um, um, traumatic cardiac arrest and how they are subtly different to to those in in medical cardiac arrest. But fundamentally, the bottom line is the same, isn't it? That CPR is not a treatment. CPR is a time-saving device which will let you think about things and sort out what the problem was which caused the cardiac arrest in the first place. Absolutely. It's the consequence of uh, whatever happened to the child prior to coming to the ED and uh, tells us that there is a urgency to expedite our treatment, really. And one of the problems with traumatic cardiac arrest is that a patient with trauma serious enough to cause cardiac arrest generally have something so catastrophic that by the time you get to somewhere which can sort that problem out, too much time has passed. And that is an inescapable problem in this field. Absolutely. Unless the person's just around the corner from the, the emergency department. I think the time factor is very important, isn't it? It, it? This is where the bleeding has started to occur. And unless there there is a paramedic team that can put cannulas in and start giving blood very early on, I think by the time they arrive at the uh, the doorstep of the ED, things are pretty dire, really. Um, but not even um, paramedic teams will have blood on blood on board, so it's a it's a very difficult situation. But there is a there is a middle ground group, isn't there? A middle ground of people who are bleeding catastrophically, but not quite torrentially. So they're the patients who who are bleeding very very severely. Um, but will also be able to survive until they get to hospital. Absolutely. I think the, the other side of the situation here is that if the hemoglobin continues to drop, if the child continues to require more and more transfusion, then you know that there is something dastardly wrong with this child. There is a need for surgical intervention, really. So you have, I have been in a situation where there have been ruptured spleen, there's been uh, traumatic sort of uh, gastric bleeding. And in that sort of situation, unless there is a, an early intervention by the surgeons, transfusion is going to lead to more complications. The things like um, damage control surgery and talks I've been to in the past have been extraordinary how in during the Afghanistan conflict, uh, the outcomes got better so quickly as the teams learned how to control the initial hemorrhage. Absolutely. I think that the talk that we had uh, in one of our previous podcasts with the trauma surgeon from St. Mary's was just outstanding. And I think it's interesting how uh, the mortality has dropped tremendously in the, the warfare situation. And that's because they have expert surgeons around who know how to manage causes of bleeding.
And for those who want to look that up, that's Pickapod 34 when we talked to Shihan Hetirachi, um, who talked to us about um, major, major combat trauma. Um, that was really a, an excellent talk, and that was at the 2019 uh, PICS conference for ISS 45 patients. The survival rates initially was 30% and went up to 95% after after a few months. So that's an, an incredible learning curve for them. Um, we don't see many patients with ISS 45 um, who just come in off the streets. Um, no. Most of our patients um, have single organ problems, but uh, but still we do see some very severely injured tractor patients. Well, let's see what um, Marie said when I when I spoke to her, and then afterwards we we can chat about a few more things, Harish. Fantastic. So I'm at the PCCS 2023 conference in Edinburgh, and I'm sat with um, Marie Spears, who's a consultant in PTD in Glasgow. And she's just done a great talk on post-traumatic cardiac arrest in children and put out some concepts which are, which are quite challenging and really fascinating. And we're going to just go with a few of those things. So, um, Marie, welcome. And please, could you just summarise a little bit of what you just, just told us? Yeah, so uh, thanks very much for, for talking to me today. So I was invited along to speak about traumatic cardiac arrest. And really some of the concepts that I wanted to get over were, were really that it is its own separate entity and we should be thinking about it as that. Um, and that really the focus is on treating the cause of the cardiac arrest. Um, and that really focuses on uh, five um, categories of, of maintaining oxygenation, uh, stopping um, hemorrhage, treating with blood um, and um, and putting pelvic binders on in, in blunt trauma um, and really just having this life-saving intervention bundle that you prioritise. And it's quite difficult because it sort of moves away from our conventional um, thoughts on uh, managing cardiac arrest and that the, the this should be taking emphasis over chest compressions and defibrillation where that is uh, required and also the use of, of vasopressors. So the life-saving interventional bundle that I talk about should be the priority. It's treating the cause um, and that that's associated with better outcomes. Um, when I teach APLS, it's very clear, you know, you start the ABC and then you have a bit of time to think and you go over the four H's and four T's, which are the um, reversible causes. I think your main message is reversible causes need to be reversed as soon as possible and in trauma the reversible causes are a bit different to the medical um, reversible causes. Yeah absolutely the majority of traumatic cardiac arrest uh, are caused by either severe hemorrhage um, or traumatic brain injury or a combination of the two. Um, Obviously it's it can be difficult in terms of acutely to manage the traumatic brain injury but certainly easy accessible treatment for for severe hemorrhage and that's something we can easily reverse but we should be doing that with blood and not looking at using crystalloids unless we don't have blood there available immediately. Um, One of my principles is you fix things at the rate they broke so if you just hose out blood you should unhose it in unhose you know what I mean Um, put it back straight away yes absolutely and so that's I mean that's the sort of ethos of this life-saving intervention bundle it's stopping the hemorrhage if you're able to do that and you know replacing the the volume that you've lost um, with like for like if that's possible and that can be difficult in terms of access to products Um, but certainly you know we should be looking to use blood early and fairly aggressively in in children who sustain cardiac arrest and trauma. Um, 
One thing which you which you challenged us about was that the futility of CPR in these situations, um, because actually there's nothing for the heart to to hold on to, so there's no point in making it pump really. However, um, as you've just said, there's delay in the system, isn't there? So in the you know even in the best scenarios, we've got five ten minutes to sort out some blood. We've got to get IV access and draw it up and check it and double check it and triple check it. What what do we do in that time frame? In that in that that intervening time. So I suppose you know you you processes are really still going to be the same you're going to be looking to as we've said stop the hemorrhage because unless you can try and do that then you're still going to be losing volume um, you know you should be looking to secure the airway um, and ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation um, and that to a large extent will depend on the skill set that you have within the room um, but obviously um, intubation would be the gold standard um, you know you as you quite rightly point out you would need to be looking at getting access it doesn't really matter whether that's intravenous it can be very difficult to obtain that in a child particularly if they cold and shut down um, and you know if, if IO is the method that you can manage to get in then use that absolutely um, and really then you know if, if you haven't got immediate access to blood then it's totally reasonable to, to use crystalloidum where you can use that wand um, but really you know your focus should be on the next step and it should be about getting that blood in aggressively and early. Um, you spoke about a fascinating study in pigs which um, well, slightly, slightly um, grisly, but very interesting. Yeah, so one of the studies that I presented uh, was a, a team uh, that published in 2019 looking at they induced um, the same injury in, in a group of pigs and, and allocated them to either receive chest compressions or uh, blood or normal saline or chest compressions with blood and with normal saline. And actually the outcomes uh, were actually pretty compelling that all of the um, pigs that received compressions only died and all the pigs that received blood uh, survived. So, you know, I mean, I suppose, it, and, and what I was talking about is really just reorientating the way we think about trauma, uh, cardiac arrest in, in trauma, that you can't necessarily just rely on those skills that you have for managing a medical arrest, that actually it's its own separate entity and should be treated in that way. But but even um, for for medical cardiac arrest, CPR is not, is not a treatment. CPR buys you time to fix whatever the problem is. Um, the problem may be just a cessation of blood flow, which the CPR itself may help to, but it's not actually the fix. The fix is improving your flow, it's improving your, um, your myocardial perfusion. So, so the same principle, isn't it, that CPR is not the treatment. And you can do CPR all day long, and it's not going to help, because at some point you're going to have to stop. Yes, absolutely, 100% I agree with that. The, the study on pigs, the intervention was done after the systolic blood pressure dropped to 20, or MAP of 20. So, so it wasn't actually done in pigs with a cardiac standstill. It was done with pigs who, who essentially had no intravascular vo- volume to pump. I think that detail is important because it's not cardiac arrest it is circulatory arrest, which is different to cardiac arrest. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I think the theme of, of everything that I presented really was looking at early intervention is better. So actually, um, 
as I said, the children that had achieved ROSC by the time they got to the hospital um, do better than those that remain in cardiac arrest. So absolutely, you're right. And that's why, um, you know, particularly when we're talking about the emergency department thoracotomy, it's witnessed cardiac arrest. So, you know, you're at that point where, at that turning point of what you just said there exactly is, you've not quite got loss of volume and circulatory collapse and you intervene at that early, earlier stage. Yeah. You talked about vasopressors as well. Yeah, so um, there is some evidence to suggest that the use of vasopressors in massive hemorrhage is actually detrimental, and certainly one of the studies that I presented uh, found that the seven-day survival was um, was significantly lower in patients that had been resuscitated uh, from traumatic cardiac arrest with adrenaline than those that had had not received adrenaline. Um, so again, I suppose, and, and, you know, in, in none of these ways am I saying don't do these things, um, but it's about actually your priorities are different, you know, that actually if taking the time to intubate the patient and stopping CPR in order to be able to do that, that's the right thing to do, um, you know, and, and I think that's a really important message just to get over. Um, was that a study, study randomised or was it uh, a study which showed, like many studies do, that worse patients do worse? Yeah, it absolutely was a study that showed that worse patients do worse. Yes, absolutely. And, and I suppose it's difficult, you know, uh, undertaking studies on, on, on these types of cases is a difficult thing to do because it doesn't happen very often. And, you know, how do you go about getting consent to do these things, you know, at a time when you're actually just managing? So all of the studies that I looked at really were either observational studies or done sort of retrospectively as part of a systematic review. It's very difficult to randomise these studies, isn't it? Because clearly there was that study which looked at, in adults, adrenaline or none in, in cardiac arrest. But clearly you can't consent for that because you've literally had a cardiac arrest. And it's difficult. We need to be brave to do this study, ethically brave, because otherwise they can't be done and we're just stuck in this very strange, evidence-free quagmire. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, the sort of framework that I presented um, that was put together by Vassallo and his team in 2018, that was based on consensus statements. So it was a Delphi study that was done and it was based on consensus statements based on the experience of clinicians that had experience in managing traumatic cardiac arrest. So, you know, it is really sort of experience driving best practice. Um, and I think, you know, in, in these very thankfully very rare occurrences particularly in children you know that that's where you know working together as a team and and, and sharing best practices is, is where that comes into it so the final part of your of your talk was about the uh, the dramatic um testosterone filled blood and guts crack the chest bits uh and there's there's mixed evidence for that isn't there yeah absolutely and i think you know there's a there needs to be an injection of realism here that that is a last ditch uh you know temporizing measure and the outcome is likely to be abysmal and i think you know you need to know that when you're going into it and i do think it's something that uh, as an emergency medicine physician certainly as i said in my talk gives me cold sweats and and nightmares because it is that sort of panic of getting into the chest but i think by far and away the most important thing is actually do you have the right resources to deal with what you find when you open that chest? It is a temporising measure and it's designed to get you to definitive care. Um, so if you don't have definitive care immediately there available, then actually the question should be asked whether this is the right thing to do. Um, I worry about di- dignity in these situations. Um, I think you're right. I think the outcomes are 
pretty set by the time you are doing internal cardiac massage. I think by that time, it's clear what the outcome is going to be. And then what is the, you know, the moral, the dignity aspects for this poor child who is dying or is dead? Um, and for the parents also who may appear to the scene of this, of this bloodbath, I think it's difficult to understand. There are specific situations where this is useful. So I'm thinking about a, a specific um, penetrating trauma and you need to plug the hole in the chest. Now that may then be life-saving with a good outcome, but often isn't it just way too late? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, when we look at the indications, probably the ones that do best are those that are done to relieve cardiac tamponade. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. There is a dignity aspect of it. Um, and at the end of my talk, I sort of touched on the point of having parents in the resuscitation room. And it's certainly my personal practice, if that's what the families want to have them in the room. Um, obviously, that's not something you would ever want a parent to witness. But even, you know, if they're out of the room for that taking place, they're still going to come back in and see their child or their young person. And it is a very visual thing. And, and just sort of anecdotally as a an experience that I had is that actually it had a really detrimental effect on the staff mm. because once we had discontinued resuscitation there was still a little bit of cardiac activity you could just see the heart twitching and I think you know that that happens in you know in situations where you haven't opened the chest you can't see it happening but actually the staff in that really quite disconcerting uh, that's that's really interesting that's that, that those visuals confuse matter sometimes yeah, absolutely. And it, that, those are the sorts of things that stay with people that they maybe can't process at the time and, and need to sort of, you know, uh, process a bit later on. Thank you. Um, um, that was really fascinating. Thank you. And um, thank you for coming to the conference. Not at all. Thank you very much for your time. Well, there we go. Um, that was good, wasn't it? Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think sort of uh, really good learning points, aren't they, for both ED doctors as well as uh, intensivists? Um, and the message is, fix the problem, isn't it? If you lose blood, then put it back in. And as I said, in my uh, infinite wisdom, you try to fix things at the rate they broke. So if someone has bled a lot, just chuck it back in. Um, yeah, and I like your term, unhose. Um, unhose is not a word. Apologies um, apologies for using that. That's, that's disgraceful. One of the papers which she spoke about was the paper in pigs, which is called Closed Chest Compressions Reduce Survival in an Animal Model of Hemorrhage-Induced Traumatic Cardiac Arrest. This is by Watts et al. And it was published in um, Resuscitation in 2019. Animal studies give us license to do things which would be impossible in human, in human studies. And this was a really interesting uh, study design. So first of all, they had... 39 pigs um, who were terminally anaesthetized and then they they caused injury with uh, with three shots to the right thigh using a captive bolt um, and then they underwent a controlled hemorrhage of 30 percent blood volume at exponentially reducing rates they then held the map at approximately 40 millimeters of mercury for the next 60 minutes um, and then after that, had a further controlled hemorrhage to achieve a map of 20 millimetres of mercury. So crucially and very importantly, these are not patients in cardiac standstill. I say the word patients. These are not pigs in cardiac standstill. These are pigs in an extreme low flow state, but whose myocardium was still firing and functioning. 
They then um, split into five groups. The first group just um, had compressions. The second group just had um, whole blood. The third group just had saline. The fourth group had whole blood and compressions. And the fifth group had saline and compressions. And then they looked at the outcomes after that. The compressions were all done using the Lucas chest compression system, which is really a fantastic system. I don't know if you've used it, Harish. It's a it's an automated chest compression system. I've seen them uh, on videos, but I haven't seen them in yeah. in action. Um, especially for for larger children, it's such a great machine which never gets tired in stark contrast to us us humans so it gives consistent and tireless um, chest compressions and the outcomes were really really quite fascinating fascinating if we just give a chest compressions in patients who have practically bled out that's not going to get you anywhere and all the pigs died only one survived to the end of the of the uh, resuscitation phase uh, and none of them survived to the end of the study. But then if you compare the two groups, so blood and blood and compressions, or saline and saline and compressions, for both of those com- comparisons, actually compressions reduced the outcomes. So there are there are more deaths um, and poorer outcomes in the two match groups who had compressions compared to those who didn't have compressions really interesting to think about why that is isn't it it is absolutely i can't think for any reason unless uh, by compression you are producing even further uh, loss of blood uh, what do you think patrick um i think you are causing some pretty severe myocardial bruising actually um proper proper chest compressions are pretty brutal they are things which are you know significantly energetic and you're trying to um to get that ventricle to to push the blood out it's quite an agricultural process it's not very refined you're just trying to hammer something and squeeze and squeeze in both in both directions so even though chest compressions are useful and often with patients with an, with an arterial line we, we can achieve higher blood pressures during compressions than before the compression started in bradycardic patients for instance but it's it's not great um, you're just squeezing the heart at a random point you'll be you'll be pushing blood backwards as well as forwards um, and and crucially also you need to be filling those those coronary arteries as well which won't be done with the um the compressions to be honest i was surprised about how how much of a negative effect it had i'm not surprised that that blood is the way to go right because the, these patients had bled from a normal state to a map of 20s so blood is clearly the solution here and compressions are not going to help. But I'm surprised that that compressions themselves seem to make the situation worse. Uh, what's interesting is that this work was carried out by the, the team uh, associated with the academic department of military emergency medicine. And again, we are going back to uh, people who are in the battlefield. I think they have a they've developed and developed 
fantastic expertise in managing trauma. And there's an awful lot of things to learn from them. But can we learn or should we learn that we shouldn't be giving chest compressions in a traumatic cardiac arrest patient? I think we're not there yet, are we? No, I don't think that will be feasible. And I don't think we are in a situation where there's going to be a randomised control trial in that area. Exactly. Exactly. Um, What we can learn from this paper is to treat the cause um, and that bleeding patients need, need blood. And that saline is not a substitute for blood because what we need is to get the circulation going yes but circulation with useful stuff so we need to maintain the do2 which is given by hb times cardiac output times saturations mainly um and hb is a critical part of that and if we're just giving a saline we're not changing we we may be increasing the cardiac outputs but we're not going to change the hemoglobin arm of that um, and if you're if you've bled to a map of 20 you've had a very serious blood loss i think uh, you, there was a paper that i said to you which was entitled battlefield resuscitation of the future by matthew martin and, uh, and his team and they start off by saying quoting abraham lincoln which is the best way to predict the future is to create it and one of the thing thing they talk about is that Hemorrhage is a supply and demand problem. The next generation of therapies may start tackling the demand side of equations. And I think this is where artificial blood, et cetera, has to be sort of uh, worked on uh, by future scientists, because I think that's going to be a major, major shortfall if there are major warfare around, as they are at the moment. What I liked about the paper, which was written in uh, 2017, um, they talk about the future battlefield of 2025, which uh, which now is only um, 15 months away, isn't it? So it's really very very close. And very here we're using um, each soldier and um, will drink a small prepackaged vial of liquid with a mixture of novel agents that activate or enhance key proteins or enzyme systems with a greater tolerance to blood loss, increased tissue protection against stress and inflammation. An ability to tolerate longer periods without decreased oxygen the delivery to end organs. Um, but then also have things like a powdered form of plasma, which is just reconstituted, and then synthesized red blood cells and platelets, which were grown in a bioreactor, which don't need cross-matching and carry no risk of infection. I think our lab colleagues need to pull their fingers out because we've only got 15 months until all this stuff needs to be not only activated but invented created trialed and uh in use absolutely but i think uh, there is a desperate need for it because wars going around more surgery being carried out now in people of all ages i think there is a need for artificial blood so to so to speak uh, and also not only is it you don't need cross matching, but they'll be free of viruses, etc. So far, I think we've gone down to uh, hepatitis E, but there is obviously F to Z still to be discovered, and fewer. Um, that's, that's logic there, logical, Harris. Absolutely. So I think we need to make sure that we don't continue to re- use red cells unless it's absolutely necessary. So to a certain degree, 
we have to be judicious. And this is where uh, artificial red cells will be very, very useful. Um, so it would be, but it's also very humbling, isn't it, as human beings, when we realise that probably one of the most basic cells in the body, it, it doesn't even have a nucleus. It's just a sack of of molecules, which we make untold numbers of every day. And that's just part of how we're built. And yet to make them artificially is something which we haven't yet cracked or even become near to cracking. Well, well I think part of the problem is that the uh there has been a readily available human source. You know, you could always go and put a needle into a, a healthy person and take red cells out. So there hasn't been all that dramatic uh, need to have red cells. There's never been massive shortages. So, so I think, as as I say, it's a question of supply and demand. And if the supply starts diminishing and the, de- and the demand goes up, then I think there will be uh, new technology being brought in. So I've just found a paper from 2008 which talks about this and it says uh, um, there's lots of manufacturers with with products in trial, but this is you know this is 15 years ago, so the so didn't really work well. Um, but then in 2008, the, the prediction is it will have annual sales of over 7.6 billion in the United States alone. So the first person who makes this work is going to be extremely rich. Great, good. So, so food for thought there. Is there a differentiation between medical and and um, traumatic cardiac arrest? I think it's subtle. I think Marie was absolutely right that we shouldn't just go down the, the same pathways. We, but actually, what we should be doing in medical cardiac arrest is thinking about the causes. And there's 4Hs, 4Ts, which we talk about in uh, medical cardiac arrest. That's that is what we go down and think about how to reverse the situation we're in. It's exactly the same for for traumatic cardiac arrest, just it's more likely to be hemorrhage rather than anything else. And it's, it's more likely to be an ischemic reperfusion injury associated shock, as opposed to shock in any other situation, really. And there's a whole nother, whole nother chapter, a whole nother podcast about reperfusion injuries. Um, so. But Usually in these patients, you'd be delighted to see the reperfusion and you'll take the reperfusion injury because that's the state we're in. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, it was fun um, to speak to her and uh, interesting stuff. Thank you, Patrick. Enjoy that.